firstly, I would love to thank you for taking part in Bucking the Trend and lending your very important voice to this audio project. The reason why I've asked you to come on was because you have such a wide range of experience within the arts, both directorially and curatorially. And I've always seen your work from a very young age. First of all, seeing you on television and appreciating your sort of way of thinking. Let's put it that way. Your way of thinking and kind of breaking down the arts. Just for those of you who don't know, and just so we can have a bit of an understanding of what Bucking the Trend is. Bucking the Trend is a series of conversations that I have decided to inaugurate in order to celebrate the current and I would say continuing club of black talent in the UK, specifically black directors of visual arts institutions, not only also curators in their own right. And this is my first in conversation or Bucking the Trend chat with a curator in his own right. Echo question. So to be here, Eduardo. Well, it's a pleasure to have you here. We're going to attempt an archaeology of your career trajectory, which I appreciate is always broad. Nonetheless, important in terms of inspiring the next generation and also in terms of getting a better understanding of what it is to become a curator, especially one who works at your level. So, Echo, how would you like to introduce yourself? I don't know. Do you know, uh, look, genuinely, I don't spend a vast amount of time looking back over things I do because it feels to me there's a lot to get done still. So in the very simplest terms, I call myself a writer and a curator, chairperson of the Fourth Point Commissioning Group that decides what goes on the Fourth Point in Trafalgar Square in London. I suppose probably the most, let's say it's one of the most significant public art commissions in the UK. I'm the former director of the ICA in London. And yeah, I curate shows independently and I write reasonably widely about art and about other topics to do with uh, culture and society. Very well. We're going to now focus on the beginning stages of that progress. Education-wise, Echo, where were you sort of based starting out your life tell me stories of your formative years yeah i mean look i i mean i grew up i grew up in london my family comes from ghana so my family came from ghana in the 1960s i grew up in london sort of in the 1970s and the 1980s in northwest london a place called kingsbury which is right at the end of the jubilee line wembley it's kind of quite far out I went to the comprehensive school around the corner. And I suppose, yeah, if there's anything particular that links then to now, there's a couple of things in play. One of those was that if you are unlucky enough to grow up, let's say, in Britain, the 70s, especially in the 70s, when I was a small child, or in the 80s, you know, Britain is a difficult place at that point in time. Mm. A place where racism is an every day it's kind of part of the air it's in the water it's on the tv the notion that you might be black and hold on to or claim 
some sort of equal status in society was one that people made jokes about. You know, that was the humor. That was a comedy on TV. Yeah, I, I mean, I went to the, the school I went to. It was perfectly fine. It's kind of mixed. It's kind of lots of different cultures, uh, sets of people. But at the same time, just being in Britain throughout that period leaves you, leaves me feeling like an outsider. And with that in mind, one of the things that really kind of got me through was just reading, listening to music. I mean, basically, not that different in terms of any teenager's life in that I was very devoted to pop culture, very devoted to music. Yeah, I was very devoted to reading some of the stuff I used to read a lot. I used to read music press, enemy, and melody maker. I used to read uh, style magazines like The Face and ID a lot. I used to believe in the idea that how you dressed and what you listened to and what you watched, these things could be signal components of how you both enjoyed the world, but also found a place within it. And those things meant a lot to me. And just, yeah, reading style magazines, thinking about fashion, thinking about music was kind of significant. I used to have, well, used to still do really. We had some cousins in New York, like a group of cousins in New York. One of my, one of my mum's sisters, I lived in New York. We had five cousins and they were all boys and they were kind of older. And every now and then they used to send us records and they'd send us uh, what turned out to be early hip hop and early funk records. They got a copy of, in fact, Rapper's Delight. They must have sent <laughs> 78 or something like that, original Sugar Hill pressing and so on. Uh, but simultaneously getting stuff occasionally from them, I started listening to a lot of hip hop in the early to mid 80s and Simultaneous to that, one of the things I, I sort of feel quite lucky, even, well, it's kind of the sort of balance of things between this kind of like toxic racialized environment in, the, in Britain. If you listen to music, if you listen to hip hop, if you listen to soul R&B, if you listen to pop music even, and if you read magazines and so on, I was lucky in as much as this gave me a kind of cosmopolitan understanding of yeah. it. Like it was a sort of it was a kind of interesting period. Let's say early to mid eighties, you could be listening to Africa Bambata, and Africa Bambata would lead you to looking at the work of Basquiat, for instance, because Bambata used to play downtown at the Mud Club and at kind of downtown New York clubs, which the same places that Basquiat would hang out at, which would then lead you into kind of checking out films that were made in downtown New York or reading books about that then and reversing back to thinking about what that felt like in the UK at that time. So I was sort of lucky enough in, the, in that, just the music and the fashion and the kind of culture I was into took seriously dynamics, both of race and of personal expression. And so someone like Basquiat was a kind of early hero or icon of mine because he made all of that look natural and inevitable in terms of the gathering together of different positions and cultural voices and histories. 
Thank you for that very generous introduction to your formative years and, and sort of the cultural groundings that you took from it. Something that I think I hear from what you're saying is that race played a very huge part in it. And as a person who is racialized, as you are in the system, it is important to kind of acknowledge that in its duplicitous manner in the sense that it is both something that spurs you but it's something also that has been used to spurn you at the same time. I just wanted to go further with that and look at the sort of touchstones that you mentioned, because you went from fashion to art to music to magazines, and you kind of created or selected a microcosm of your world. How did you go from a person who was very much an observer of the arts, an admirer of the arts, into probably now into your late teens deciding that you were going to do art history if you did study art history or what did you study let me let me go from that i mean i i mean i didn't study art i didn't study art history i studied politics and history in fact um well in fact okay so i suppose the way i think about it say a couple of things really one um when I went to university, I went to university at the London School of Economics. And one of the reasons I did that, to study politics and history, one of the reasons I did that was because I wanted to stay in London, because it seemed to me London was a place to be. And that I was interested and eager to try and be part of something, partly that spurred by feeling that I wasn't feeling like I was an outsider. That's partly a suburban experience. That's definitely also a racial experience. But I was keen and curious and hungry. One of the things that, well, two things really. One, one of the sort of, for me, one of the defining things happened when I was about, well, not happened really, but when I was about 17, 18, I came across a publication, Brant Town Hall Library, came across a publication, uh, which was a sort of series of essays published by the ICA, in fact. It was an ICA kind of journal of the kind of proceedings of a conference on black culture and British cinema. And it was a series of kind of conference papers uh, delivered by Stuart Hall, Paul Gilroy. Uh, I think Homie Barber might have been in there. Basically, the leading cultural theorists, you know, of that period. I hadn't really heard of them before that, but I was blown away. It completely gave me a way of thinking about who I was. You know, Stuart Hall is writing about race and identity. He's writing about blackness as a thing that's mutable, as a thing that's uh, multiplicitous, the thing that's about possibility. Uh, Gilroy is framing some of the kind of early territory that leads him to write about the Black Atlantic. It was a sort of revelatory document for me. So much so, in fact, I will confess I stole this document. I stole this publication from Brent Town Hall Library, kept it with me for many years, lost track of it now, sadly, but... It was a revelatory thing because it it kind of gave me a way to make sense of how I'd been thinking or feeling for many years before that. Anyway, I took this thing with me when I went to LSE, when I went to halls of residence at LSE. And one of the things that happened just through people I met there, I ended up working on a pirate radio station. I ended up working on um, KISS FM, which is now a legal station, but at that time it was a pirate station. At that time it was the Legion pirate station in, uh, in London. We had the best 
DJs are and the best music, kind of best on train to kind of club culture. And I ended up doing a show on there with a couple of friends of mine, which was not music based per se. We weren't DJs. We used to have an interview program. It's like a 15 minute program where we'd interview musicians or DJs who were coming over from the US because they'd be coming over all the time. Sometimes they'd be guesting on Kiss and so on. So we had this program. I did that show for a couple of years. And again, it sort of helped me think through all of these things. It made me realize that for me, one of the things I was really interested in, yeah, was taken seriously, in this case, music, but music as a route towards self-definition, self-exploration. And then essentially, by the time I graduated from the LSE, that show was over, but I found my way onto becoming a freelance journalist. So I was writing short pieces for The Face magazine, which is a magazine I'd grown up reading and kind of idolising. It's the leading style magazine of its time. And because I'd really, by then, just been able to figure out some stuff about... I was really interested in just how the dynamics of culture work. I was really interested in what it means to make music or put on a club or think about fashion and just how that worked socially. Like, you know, who were the people who went? What were they wearing? Like, where were these, you know, warehouse parties? It was all kind of mysterious. And I was really interested in just how you find your way through it because it made such a big impact on me, you know, sitting at home, listening to a pirate radio station and reading magazines. I wanted to be part of it, but more than that, I wanted to decode it, really. I wanted to figure out what its power, what its magic was about and how it fitted together in a London that I didn't really understand. Just picking up on the ideas that you've thrown out there on ontology, on being, and specifically the mystery of dynamic arts in the sense that you mentioned music again as being one of your foremost influences along with fashion and magazine culture. I want to go back on to blackness. I think it's sometimes important for us to conceptualize or, you know, ground this discussion and some of your ideas, because ideas are something that I think you hold quite dearly and I'd like to explore them and, and, and weave them through. Specifically the idea of blackness. What is blackness to you? Okay, let's go from there. Yeah, that, I mean, that, that's a good one. So growing up, I wrestled with these two things. You know, one of the experiences of blackness you have, I certainly had, was this thing with people telling me what it meant to be black. Always this experience, always this experience of being othered, always this experience of people telling you somehow that you are yes, more savage, more brute, less human, less whole. All of these things, people laughing and mocking at you, people chasing me down the street for my blackness. All of these things, all of these ways that blackness is externalised. And that was pretty painful. That was difficult. At the same time as that, when really, I think at the heart of what you're asking, I had to find my own way to blackness. I had to find my own way beyond blackness as constraint, blackness as caricature, blackness as an imposition or a kind of confinement or a pain. And what I realised really through many of these strategies that I've already been talking about, most of the things I enjoy, many of them anyway, let's say, culture created by people of colour, music, certainly, literature, certainly. So, you know, if we're still talking about 
teenage years and 20s and early 20s I'm reading you know all the people one might expect James Baldwin and Richard Wright and Tony Morrison less so art at that time but certainly like I said Basquiat or a few other figures at that point Uh, and certainly this is how I come to some sense of blackness not as constraint, but in fact the opposite. Blackness is a zone of possibility. So if I think about myself at this time, I think about someone like Prince. And Prince is a really great example of how to think about race as a mutable category, as a category that involves self-definition rather than the, def- the definition of others. So it was some years... After this, that I came across Du Bois's description of double consciousness. So Du Bois famously in 1903 coins this term, W.B. Du Bois coins this term double consciousness, where he talks about the what for him is this kind of the unbearableness, really being black and seeing the world twice over, once through the eyes of a white society that is hostile to you, twice through your own eyes. That definition, I think, certainly rang true for me. What I've subsequently thought with that is that even as Du Bois characterizes this as pain, as a burden, I would suggest double consciousness is also an invitation towards complexity and cosmopolitanism and, and, and an ability to see the world. I think the heritage of double consciousness is an ability to see the world with duality, with threefoldness even, with an understanding of multiplicity, of perspectives and histories and pasts and possibilities. And this for me has been the way I've been able to orient myself and understanding that we share a legacy that is rooted in pain and rooted in exploitation but we also share a legacy that is an invitation to complexity to dreaming to imagining to making on our own terms and that's always been very important to me i like the fact that you just mentioned that that phrase on your own terms or on our own terms you've got so many just great concepts that I would like to actually go back to what you were talking about in terms of the complexity and the cosmopolitan side of it. Your career has taken you to many a place. And with that, it's also allowed you to explore the meaning of home. Where would you consider home to be? Yeah, that, I mean, that's a good one. I mean, I've read, written about that somewhat and thought about it a great deal. In my terms, home is a hard one concept or even construct in that if you're black and you live in Britain, the reality is that in many ways we're not wanted here. And that's quite difficult, therefore, as a place to make a home. However, I think the act of making home is the thing that becomes important and significant. The act of saying, okay, look, in the end, I have a choice, relatively speaking, where I can be. 
if I choose to stay here, then I'll try and make that as far as possible on my own terms. I'll try and make that as far as possible in ways that are, are comfortable to me. And what that means for me, it's not about, you know, the kind of physical way you choose the house. In a way, this thing for me of choosing to be in London or in Britain, to be at home here, I try and create the circumstances that make sense for me, that make things livable for me. And part of that, therefore, is about doing the writing that I do or the curating that I do. It's about actually genuinely trying to make the world around me make sense for me. So it's partly about determining things on my own terms, but it's also then about saying, okay, look, why don't we try and live as I see fit? So home is really, I think, about choosing not to know your place. Rather, it's about trying to assert your place and your point of view on a wider society. Because if you don't do that, frankly, you just have to accept how other people see the world. And given that, as we have, or as I would suggest, that remains hostile to our presence, that's not that comfortable. So for me, home is an active verb or territory. It's a way of making space and trying to hold space within which myself and hopefully other people can live. Wow. So let's go beyond home and let's think about the way in which London has featured in your life. How do you see London as both Londoner in terms of someone who's lived and grown up in London and also in terms of as a space in which you can make your own? I mean, here's the thing. I would say that none of these are individual projects. You know, I talk about trying to make a home that makes sense for me. Really, a lot of that is about trying to be in connection, or if you will, trying to be in kinship with others whose work, whose ideas, whose presence I admire. So, again, if we go back in time, I distinctly remember when, uh, you know, a, a set of artists, Chris, Ophelia, and Yinka, Shane Barrow, and Steve McQueen, started to emerge in the, whenever that was, mid-late 90s. And the kind of dazzling nature of their work, their enormous, in fact, success from an early period, what was exhilarating about what they were doing was that it seemed to describe visually a world that I recognised, a world, again, that's predicated on cosmopolitanism, predicated on difference, predicated on hybridity. This was the London that I wanted to live in. It's not just about me. It's about, in this case, a city, I think, where... People are doing extraordinary things where collectively we see a city that speaks of difference as an animating factor, hybridity, these terms, cosmopolitanism again, 
as a founding facet of what it means to live and move through space and orient oneself that way. So when I think about these things, when I think about the place where I live, London, or when I think about how I've tried to how I've tried to live within that, is yes, not just about I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. I've always sought inspiration from work, from people, from ideas who I think are whose projects I think are making the world as I encounter it richer more complex, more strange, more beautiful, more extraordinary. That's when I'm going to ask you the big question, the, the one that kind of, um, when I would say writing and curation are, and also journalism part of your, uh, your sort of palette, let's just put it that way, your artistic palette of expression. I want to, to ask, what is curation to you as a, as a, kind of reflexive verb that is continuously, you know, being exercised. How did you first come across it? How let's just start with those two. To some extent, curation is relatively simple in as much as you're trying to hold space. You know, if you have a show in a gallery, you start off with blank walls. You're trying to think about how works any given form of photography you know paintings whatever how they can fit together in that space but for me more than that it's really about an exploration of a given set of propositions by choice I tend to work with the work of black artists I'm interested again how can expand the world through the point of view of those artists I'm interested, therefore, in exploring, I suppose, what happens when you go beneath the surface of those works, into the ideas that animate those works, into the ideas that I'm personally interested and fascinated by. So, look, so I suppose the, the simple version of this for me is that curation is about thinking aloud. It's about thinking in 3D, but it's also about thinking beyond the literal, like artworks and the work of artists in general is a strange, quite elusive thing because artists tend not to, obviously some of them do, but tend not to speak in words. They speak their images. So those images have a number of meanings or potential meanings to them. I don't think my role isn't per se about interpreting those or anything. As I see it, if you're curating a show, you're having a conversation or you're positing a conversation between a group of artworks that helps then elucidate a position or a proposition. You're creating an environment of inquiry and encounter. Just on that point of inquiry and encounter, you speak in in almost a tri-dimensional sense of a being in time in almost the language of Homi Baba and the language of sort of hybridity and, and in the language of art as a form of expansion, especially art as a form of fashioning, let's put it that way, or fashioning mm-hmm. a reality. And that always has a, a, a kind of bifocal or trifocal, if you include the mind and the body, 
without including dualism in it. There's a lot to take from that. And I wanted to also look at the word images. You use the word images, you speak in metaphor. I wanted to know, how do you position yourself as the individual in that? In your description, you don't seem to, how can I put it, prize yourself. Some people would prize themselves above the idea of the artist. Yeah, I don't... Yeah. I mean, look, the, the thing is, the part that I play in this is really the easy bit is to have the idea. That's work, yes, but it's nothing without the artworks themselves. My point of inspiration is the work. All I'm trying to do is find a way to explore that that's interesting or kind of expansive for me or for others. But I do absolutely put what they, the artists, do at the forefront of that because that's not what I do. It's not what I can do. Otherwise, that's what I do. Otherwise, if, you know, if I was an artist myself, I'd just put on my own shows. But I'm not an artist. You know, I'm not a visual artist. And I'm fascinated by the places artists go to creatively. And I'm fascinated by what they bring back from that. So when I'm putting on a show, a lot of the, you know, the conversations that I have with artists, I, you know, I take their work really seriously. And I do a lot of work way in advance of even inviting someone to be part of a show because I have to figure out if in a group show their work makes sense, if they all feel it, if they feel it makes sense, and so on and so on, because the goal, like I said, yeah, the goal is to create this space of relationships, this space of encounter. And so, you know, what you find when you talk to, if you do a group show, what you find when you talk to an artist, you're always keen to know who else is in the show, where they're going to be positioned, how many works they have, how much space they have. You know, these are all legitimate questions they're doing with their careers. So the physical dimension of this comes into play from a very early stage. You know, you can write anything you want down on paper, but the distinction here is that as a set of tasks, it's about turning this into an environment. It's about turning this into a space that people are then within. And that, I find it helps to think in those terms always from the beginning. What is it I'm seeing? What is it I'm meeting? What is it I'm feeling in this space? How are these things sitting together? What's what's sparked once you start to combine artists in a space? What conversations or ideas begin to flow from that? And how do those speak back to the original concept or the original territory you're trying to delineate? In adumbrating those territories, we've spoken about your role in terms of as, as custodian of others' imagination. I think you mentioned a few people that have inspired you, like as inviters, like the boys and and Stuart Hall and etc. I just wonder, how is it that you as a coalition see the world now? Because we've spoken a little bit about how it is that you come to becoming who you are. But it will also be nice to kind of play those concepts and also understand how you're positioning yourself now in terms of thinking about the three-dimensional environment. You know, let's talk about Venice. That might be an interesting crew line. 
Well, look, I you, you don't have to know that. You don't have to, but no, no, no. Actually, well, in fact, thing, maybe the, the salient thing here, I think, is I'm doing an exhibition in a couple of months' time at the Haywoods Gallery. Mm. Uh, it's, a, it's a group show called In the Black Fantastic. And it's a group show that brings together black artists that deal with myth and speculative fictions in their work. And it includes uh, Kara Walker and Wengechi Mutu and Chris Feely and Hugh Locke and Nick Cave and about 11 artists, I think. And, you know, I think we're all exceptional artists. And these questions about how you create an environment, these are very much in my mind as a consequence. So I'm thinking about that space and thinking about just how the it works can sit together. But if you ask me, where am I or how am I now? That show is one of the places I am right now. And as much as that show in Black Fantastic is predicated really on, on two things. One of kind of ongoing awareness of the fiction of race, of the kind of races of kind of socially constructed rather than scientifically authentic category. But race nevertheless is a category that has a defining aspect on how we all see the world. So I'm interested in race as a fiction, race as a lived reality. And then I'm interested in how myself, and in this case, the artists in the show, negotiate this space of uh, constraint and absurdity and pain and possibility. Works that draw on the fantastic in this way. I think you think about Carl Walker's work or any of these artists' work or Hugh Locke, who's also a, you know, take Britain right now. I think about their work and what this does is push reality quite far in order to assert their individual role as artists to have space to think, to dream, to imagine, but also, I think, then to, as a repost to these notions that blackness is a fixed category. The, deeper and deeper layers and perspectives that these artists offer to think about blackness as a site of imagining, dreaming, and sometimes nightmare. I think it's extraordinary. And on a personal level, this gives me real impetus, imagination, pleasure, because I still spend much of my time thinking about well, what does it feel like to live and to negotiate this space? And in the acknowledgement of racist fiction and lived reality, what does it mean to continue to negotiate a racialized space? Because the pressures of this don't particularly let up. Britain today is not the Britain that I grew up with, but it's perverse and strange in its own ways right now. And it's deadly in some ways. And so I'm interested in, okay, look, how can I live? How can I find pleasure? How can I find curiosity? How can I find levity? How can I find my way to imagination and creativity and fashioning anew? That's the task. It remains the task. The joy I have is to be able to explore some of that in physically expansive ways, like this show at the Haywood, and then in other ways, just through aspects of what I write as well. So to that end, I feel I'm quite lucky in that I get to do and think and bring to bear a number of things that are inside my head. This is what I do. 
in chasing after the elusive characteristics of blackness, it's sort of recognizing blackness as both a, a fixed category and also a mutable category. How much is it chasing a relic uh, after a yellow brick, brick road, if you excuse the... Well, what, the do you, yeah, what do you mean by that? Do you mean that as a fantasy or...? I, I meant it exactly as that, because the word fantastic, I think from its Latin root, has some sort of phantasm, as in ghost. Are we, are we chasing after the ghosts of Immanuel Kant and, and, you know, the enlightenment ghosts of, of racecraft and, and capitalism and how it came from, in essence, the exploitation of the global south? And there is a, a lack of realization or enough, I would say, real appreciation of those epistemic factors. Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely a project that at its heart has a skepticism about those enlightenment histories attached to it. It's an interesting position we find ourselves in, all of us who live in Britain or in the West. You know, we all grow up. Enlightenment notions of progress and order and rationality and modernity, even to follow from that. And many of these are nevertheless predicated on a lack of acknowledgement of black people as fully human. You know, Thomas Jefferson writes that all men are created equal, the founding father of the United States, except that Thomas Jefferson keeps slaves. Thomas Jefferson himself is happy to define. Uh, black people as whatever it's two thirds. You can go back to Kant. You can go back to Hegel. You can go back to many of these foundational figures and find their racist writings, writings that you cannot dismiss somehow as just an expression of their time. You know, writings and beliefs that are fundamentally about uh, a refusal to acknowledge black people as human and whole and alive. This is one of the things that the again, animates me to this day. You know, that runs two ways. One is uh, you know, it's a sense of injustice of power, and therefore a belief in uh, racial justice, a belief in solidarity and kinship. One is, and the other way is also a desire to assert aliveness. And that means you're also then allowed to take pleasure and pride and inspiration in the art that we create, the music that we produce, the clothes and the fashion and the style with which we walk through the world. All of these things become, oh, really important to me because this is part of our answer to that history. This is part of our answer to that lie that says we're not wholly human, is to live as fully as we can. And, you know, again, I think about, let's say, let's go back to Yinka, Shonibara, for instance, for a moment. And let's think about how his artworks and his use of this signature boutique are always, always about this investment in blackness as cosmopolitan, as blackness with its roots in global histories, in complexities of travel and place and belonging, and also then in beauty, in display, in self-fashioning. In comp. 
Yeah. Yeah, ex- exactly. In dandyism. All of these things are allowed. All of these things are important because all of these things are about how we take space, how we own and claim space so that no one else can have it, so that we can have that space on our own terms. Wow. Just on the last two questions before I wrap up, I wanted to ask you these two questions. Any question for me? And pearls of wisdom. Oh, good Lord. I don't have any pearls of wisdom. I don't know. Look, genuinely, as I said at the beginning, I tend not to spend too much time looking back because I'm interested and curious in how one can create stuff. I find there's not enough time to keep reading. I find that every day I come across stuff that is inspiring to me. And what I'm most interested in is trying to be yeah, it's trying to be part of a conversation. That's the thing that animates me most. Trying to be part of a conversation about who we are and about how we live and about how we can continue to be alive and how we can continue, hopefully, to thrive somewhat. You know, just came back from Venice, as I was saying. So to see Sonia Boyce win a golden lion, to see Simone Lee win a golden lion, these are the things. These are great achievements for them, but, you know, this is about us as a whole, and that's what's so thrilling about seeing those instances. Like I said, yeah, anything I do, I try, I hope it has some sort of shared, um, just kind of expanse to it, because for me, the greatest thing is to be able to, yeah, to be part of the conversation to be part of an ongoing discussion about how we live, how we can live. I enjoyed this conversation immensely, just getting a slice, a 45-minute slice through your mind. I can see your bookshelf. Any texts that you find foundational, just as a, as a last, you know, well, as a, as a uh, I mean, five, ten, three, four? I mean, look, I mean, many, many things. I think, you know, I'm sure... We're all in the same place. But look, I'm just looking up at my shelves right now. Uh, just, to, just to take two things, two quite short books that I spend quite a lot of time looking at over the last number of months. There's a book called The Black Interior, which is a series of essays by uh, an American poet, Elizabeth Alexander, which I tend to time in again, because actually the beginning of that book, Elizabeth Alexander posits this notion about, well, yes, black interiority about the space of dreaming and possibility that lies within and outside, within and outside the constraints of a white society that lies within each of us. And then also just another book called A Black Gaze by Tina Kant, which is, uh, so Tina Kant's a great kind of theorist of visual culture. This is her most recent book, came out last year, but it's a book about artists, visual artists, chief filmmakers and photographers, Arthur Jaffa and Dina Lawson, who again are expanding the ways that audiences, white as well as black, can see through the eyes of black creative figures, can see the world through what Tina Camp calls a black gaze. So in a way, that book is in direct conversation with Du Bois's 
original notion of double consciousness. Uh, Tina Camp suggests that where we are right now is a time of extraordinary flourishing within which black artists are expanding the canon as a whole through the acuity of their work, through the depth of their imaginative response to the world. So for me, it's a, we can stick with those so many more, but let's do just those two right now. Well, Echo, I think the audience and myself have had, well, will be having um, a lot to chew over in a three-dimensional sense, just so much to be taken from each strand of your responses. Thank you very much for spending this hour with me. Hello, Trend Buckers. Thank you for having listened to another episode of Bucking the Trend. This week, we had the pleasure, or this episode, better put, we had the pleasure of encountering the life and times of Echoition. Echo is an extraordinary person, someone who I've looked up to for a very long time. And it was personally my humble pleasure to have spent an hour in his digital presence for the purposes of this episode. Echo gave us a wholesome account of his life from suburbia into central London, from suburban London, I meant to say, into central London, where he studied at the LSE and gave us a closeted manure of his influences, of his readings, of his understanding of self, and moreover, proposition, an idea that I haven't actually, in essence, thought of. The idea that we must always be striving to make the world in which we currently live in best for us and to take up space, not in a selfish way, but in a way that allows for the greater good. And the definition of taking up space and the greater good can be debated. But moreover, there is a moral imperative for people of colour, specifically within the UK, because of the current times in which we live, with the government which we have, with the policies that they employ, we must take a stand, we must take up space. Because what I also gleaned from the episode, from the archaeology we conducted with Echoishan of his life, was that it's forever been thus. Maybe the racism has not in the past been as covert as it is now, and becoming more and more overt as it was in his childhood. People being told what blackness is to them without them understanding what blackness is to them themselves. And in a way, Echoishan's practice centers around understanding and communing with others of the same diasporic African roots both in the UK and the US, and also on the continent, and advancing their narratives, their stories, their conversation in a way that both shines a light on the issues and and other preoccupations that these artists have. He mentioned that a curator does not impose and does not interpret, but in essence, a curator has the job of convening 
in a way bringing together and curing. And that's really where I would like to go to at the end of this peroration. Thank you very much for having tuned in to Bucking the Trend. As ever, I would like to thank Ekerishen for being so amenable. And thank you. Remember to like, share and comment.